Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with Eric Siebert. And Eric has just written a book, How to Enjoy the Old Testament. Have I said it right? Enjoying the Old Testament. Uh, enjoy, enjoying the Old Testament. I missed, my, <laughs> missed the first thing. Okay. And you are an Old Testament scholar. You teach there at Messiah College, right? Yeah, I teach. That's correct. I'm a professor of Old Testament at Messiah University. That's my area of specialty. Can you give us a little bit of your background, which I think is pertinent as to how you ended up an Old Testament professor? I grew up in the Brethren in Christ tradition, a Christian tradition, and I attended Messiah, uh, then it was Messiah College many years ago, and I had a early on in my career, I was a Bible major. I took a class with a professor, Old Testament professor named Terry Brenzinger, and he really kind of excited my imagination for the Old Testament. And um, so I went from Messiah College to Asbury Seminary, ultimately to Drew University, and got my PhD in, um, in biblical studies and, and in Old Testament in particular. So I just sort of, I once I got hooked, I just wanted to get more and more and more, and now I now I spend my life uh, teaching the Bible, so it's uh, kind of come full circle. Okay, all right. Can you give us a little bit of context? I think uh, many uh, may not be familiar with the brethren and how they might be located in terms of perspective. So the, the Brethren in Christ Church would have three primary theological streams, um, Anabaptism, um, Pietism, and Wesleyanism. Um, a more recent addition would be some you know, evangelicalism as part of that, but historically those those first three. So we would have similarities to uh, denominations like Mennonites. Um, there would be certain similarities with you know, the Amish, uh, with Church of the Brethren. Um, so there's a strong commitment within our tradition um, in terms of peace and peacemaking, which I'm sure many of your listeners will, will appreciate. Um, and that's been an important part of my of my own spiritual journey as well. Especially pertinent here, considering the Old Testament, and of course, the, I think a big problem that many might have with the Old Testament is just the, the violence that's there in the Old Testament. And so somebody might wonder, well, how in the world can you be an Old Testament professor and be nonviolent? Well, that, that does seem like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I, you know, I said I, I love the Old Testament and I abhor violence, so it is, it is sort of a dilemma given how much violence there is in the Old Testament. And my, you know, some a good bit of my scholarship is focused on trying to think about what do we do with violent text um, in the Old Testament, particularly you know texts that deal with uh, divine violence, where God is portrayed as either directly engaged in acts of violence or commands other people to do um, acts of violence. So I've I've given a you know some thought to that, and there's certainly a wide range of Christian opinion about how we should handle those texts. This book, my most recent book, Enjoying the Old Testament, um, as one of my former students called it, is my is my happy Old Testament book. So I don't deal too much with those passages in this particular book, but but they are they are a real stumbling block, I think, for a lot of people to enjoy and enter and engage the Old Testament. Eric, this is the part in meeting you and just talking to you that you're somebody who has. Uh, that I've very much appreciated. You have this profound 
engagement with the Old Testament. I think a thing that we can all learn, and and, that I've learned from you, that there are places in the Old Testament that are simply not worthy of the God that we know as uh, in Christ. When we look at these portrayals of God in the Old Testament, um, we need to be careful not to draw sort of a straight line from the text says this about God, therefore that's what God is like. Um, and I think even you know a careful reader, when they make their way through the Old Testament, will notice that there are these depictions that are in tension with one another, I would even say at some points in, just in contradiction with, with one another, that they, they don't sit very nicely together. And so we're required to make some choices. You know, the question becomes, on what basis do you make those choices? Um, no one, you know, I don't want to just pick and choose the, you know, these are the images that I like, so this is what God is like, and these are the ones that I dislike, so then God can't be that way. That, that would be so, sort of arbitrary. So I think you need to have some kind of a principled approach to, to navigate that. But, but yeah, I think we need to be really careful not just to say, I'm going to open the Bible, read this story about what God did, supposedly what God supposedly did or said, and, and therefore conclude that's what God actually did instead, and that's what God's actually like. I think if we do that, um, we envision God in some very problematic ways. And so you see the Old Testament, uh, how would you describe it, uh, as accommodating, as a product of the time in which it was written? I do think it's really a product of the time and you know, the, the historical and cultural context in which it's written. So it certainly makes sense that Israelites would um, attribute to God all sorts of things, whether they're natural disasters or whether it's victory or defeat in warfare, because that would have been the worldview that would have been common at the time. And so Israel's, in a sense, not all that different from its neighbors. They would have thought of you know, God or the gods in similar kinds of ways. In the formation of these stories, they are simply reflecting some commonly understood beliefs about God, but that don't necessarily get us to see God clearly for who God actually is, and at least in the, in the instances where God is behaving violently. In the early church, there is this idea, and you mention it here, that we have to have some sort of key or method, you know, that they would have called it the rule of faith. And so I wonder if if there is, or if you would have a rule of faith by which you would interpret and delineate then how to read and what's uh, from God and what is unworthy of God. So if we're talking specifically about you know, these portrayals of God where God behaves violently, I do think, um, for me, um, using Jesus as a guide, as an interpretive guide, is really helpful. So I I talk about this in my book, Disturbing Divine Behavior. I talk about developing a Christocentric hermeneutic or you know, Christ-centered method of interpretation um, because I, I operate out of the theological assumption that we see God most clearly through the person of Jesus, most clearly and completely. And so you have to sort of ask, well, what kind of God does Jesus reveal? And we, you know, we see in Jesus a God who is kind to the wicked. We see a God who is not judging people with uh, historical natural disasters you know, in, the, in the here and now, we see a God who is fundamentally, essentially a, a God of love. And so that clear picture of who God is needs to sort of then be our, our standard or our measuring rod, sort of like a litmus test by which we can then evaluate all portrayals of God in the Bible. And if they match up to the God that Jesus reveals, then for me, I would say this is a true reflection of what God is actually like. And there are portrayals of God in the Old Testament that, that do that. But there are other places where it seems that they don't match up. And in those cases, I would say then probably what we're getting here is simply you know, Israel's historical, cultural understanding of what God was like. 
I've been reading Origin of late. I think you could describe Origin's system as obviously the word, they weren't using that word, of Christocentric, but it's a very much that he finds Christ in the Old Testament. He certainly felt like if you come across some, and he says sort of as much in these, one of his homilies on Joshua, if you come across passages that are sort of unworthy of, you know, either that don't reflect the way you believe God should be or that show God in ways that are really problematic, then probably you need to sort of dig deeper to look for some other meaning in the text. So Origen would certainly have practiced, as would have people in that time, practice of allegory. So he would, you know, connect this to, you know, Christian kinds of ideas, Christian kinds of symbols, whether that be, you know, Jesus or other things related to the Christian faith. So he would he would make those connections, but he would kind of do that through a more um, allegorical type of reading. So I, I'm not necessarily advocating that type of a symbolic or allegorical reading of the text. I think Origen and I would have sort of felt the same problem if you take some of these things just literally and say, this is what the text means. Um, he says, no, there's got to be something else going on here because this is just too troubling to read it on his face. And I don't think Origen was alone in this, that he didn't hesitate to say, oh, that's a mistake. But he took that, I think, as a sign that, yes, but it's pointing us to something deeper. And I guess what I would appreciate by what he's doing is he's he's trying to find value in in all of the text. So, you know, in contrast to someone like Marcion, who also feels the same problem, but then decides we just don't need these texts, I think Origen says, no, there's, there are things in the text that are of value to the church. And so, again, even though his method and mine would be somewhat different, I do appreciate the fact that he's trying to find useful ways to, to handle these texts. And uh, Marcion, of course, is going to just get rid of the Old Testament and actually just get rid of anything that's not written by Paul, I guess. It uh, hit a pretty narrow canon, yes. Yeah, and and it does raise the issue in all of this of anti-Semitism, of a, a kind of, as Christians, our attitude towards the Old Testament, uh, you know, which, the, the, which is really just the Hebrew Bible, or what for the early church was just the Bible, the, these Hebrew scriptures were the scriptures. I mean, how do we avoid the idea that we're moving in and taking over these texts? That's a great question. I think it's really important to be sensitive to that because you know, certainly the Christian church has a long and ugly history of anti-Semitism and don't want to perpetuate that in any way. I think to demonstrate even by using a Christocentric hermeneutic that Jesus, I mean, he knew the Old Testament scriptures, he used the Old Testament scriptures. It's not that he ignored them or, reject, or rejected them outright. I think Jesus uses them selectively um, when Jesus talks about different portrayals of God. I mean, he brings some Old Testament stories forward that, for example, in Luke chapter 4, talk about God being, you know, sort of more inclusive maybe than his listeners wanted to hear, that God is actually doing good things for outsiders, and that almost gets him killed. So he's he's picking up pieces of the tradition that um, are, are helpful in sort of talking about, um, you know, his understanding of God. So I, I think there's a nice continuity between Jesus in the New Testament, what we find in the Old Testament, if it's read, again, responsibly and carefully and used in that way. So I, I want to find ways to, to be honest with the text, um, to be able to voice problems where I see them, and to find ways to use them constructively. So again, my, my goal is not to dismiss parts of the Old Testament I, uh, you know, or to lop it off. I think just too much of it would be lost. You know, it's like the old adage, it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's there, there are so many theological riches within the Old Testament that I want people to see and enjoy. 
but you need to be careful sort of how you use those texts because again they can be they can be misused and misapplied so i think just showing the connection between jesus and the old testament showing the value of the old testament for uh, for people today those are both helpful ways to say that to, to help say we're not trying to you know, say everything Old Testament is bad, or or some, or that somehow we we all know better now, and that was sort of primitive stuff back then. I, I think there's a lot we can still learn. Yeah, you're giving us two things, and I kind of want want to describe what the ground is. That one in one instance, you've said that we should do a Christocentric reading, and I, as I understand what a Christocentric reading, though it may not be that of origin, the idea is that in fact the point of the Old Testament is to be found in Christ. Have I said that correctly? I mean, that is one, that's one way people would use it, yes. That would be the way that I'm thinking of using it, though. So I'm not, I'm not so much, um, I mean, some people are really looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm not so much doing that by my Christocentric hermeneutic. I'm, more, I'm thinking specifically about portrayals of God and how can I know if this portrayal of God is an accurate portrayal of what you know, God, the living God, the creator of the universe is actually like? And so I'm kind of using Jesus and the character of God Jesus reveals to help me make that determination. I think that's a little different from some people who are looking for Jesus sort of all over the Old Testament or trying to find all these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, again, I think there are certainly connections that can be made. The New Testament writers themselves make certain connections, but that's not primarily how I'm trying to work through this particular issue of divine violence in the Old Testament. I have found in Old Testament scholars, I'm wondering, I was a little surprised that you do then hold to some form of a Christocentric hermeneutic. And, and that is that very often they would want to just take an Old Testament text or book and not consider the book in light of Christ. You know, it's a kind of the product of the historical critical method that we kind of, oh, we take every text in isolation. But when we talk about a Christocentric hermeneutic, are we saying or not, I'm just curious how you read this, that the thing that holds the book together and constitutes it a book is Christ? Well, I, do, I mean, I, yeah, I do think there's I mean, clear connection. Like, I don't, I don't think Jesus... Um, is coming, doing something completely different from what has come before. I mean, Jesus is in a, this, a larger tradition, sort of sees himself, I think, fulfilling where that tradition is heading. So there, there are clear connections between the two. I guess I just, I do think these texts can have integrity in and of themselves. Like, you know, I could envision someone talking about, say, Exodus chapter 3, burning bush story and the whole conversation that God has with Moses in that chapter and the next and talking using that to talk about call like how God calls people I'm not sure that I would make an explicit connection between that and let's say something in the New Testament with Jesus although you could probably make some connections there I think you can just say here's a text we can look at that helps us think about how God calls us or you know, here's a passage in Exodus like the, the whole story of the manna here's a story that helps us think about how we can develop trust in God again you could certainly make points of connection to the New Testament, but I think there's a certain integrity in, in and of itself in that story to make some of those kinds of claims about God and faithful living and, and so on. Well, then I guess that raises the question in the New Testament. When Paul talks about the Jews as having a veil over their hearts, when they, in other words, what he's actually saying is 
they don't understand their Bible, and that it's only in Christ that the Scripture is unveiled for them. And I, I mean, I think there's a sense in which you could say um, you have people in the first century who are devout Jews. They know the they know the Hebrew Scriptures, and they expect a Messiah to come who's going to be a violent, conquering king. So, in a sense, I I do think there's a a certain misunderstanding or misreading of what God wants for the world, and that part of maybe essentially why Jesus is coming is to help us see what God is actually like. And so yeah, there is a sense in which I think Jesus corrects misreadings and misunderstandings of God's will and some what some of these texts are, are driving toward. And so you do need to see have Jesus to kind of help us understand more fully what God is kind of what God is up to in the world as we think about you know, the inauguration of God's kingdom of peace and justice. Uh, you know, part of this is maybe theological, and I, I sometimes have a hard time sorting out all the theologies of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, that for some people, well, we've entered a different covenant. For others, I think that there is a theology that by its very nature that the Old Testament has become secondary and not irrelevant, but it's good background material. Yeah, and again, that that concerns me. <laughs> if we sort of think, well, the New Testament is the main attraction, then it's like, well, then why bother with the Old Testament? If it's just like a preamble. It's not all that. It's not all that significant. I I, I worry that if that's the attitude people have, and they're probably not going to be likely to invest a whole lot of energy in reading the Old Testament. And again, that just sort of grieves me because I think, oh, there's so much great. There's so much great material in the Old Testament that is so helpful for living out our lives faithfully. Um, I wouldn't want people to, to see that that is only kind of the you know the background to it to, to this other story. I mean, it it is that, but it's so much more than 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 that also. So, could you describe what what for you holds the thing together? So the like the two testaments. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think I think you, as you said before, I think Jesus is the sort of is the linchpin sort of between the two. That you you have these hopes that are not really fully realized in the Old Testament. People longing for, you know, God's Spirit to be poured out on all people, like we read in the Book of Joel. Um, you know, this vision of war there be no being no more war, that people are you know beating swords into plowshares. That kind of language doesn't happen in that period of time, and I think. With the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the kingdom of, of peace and justice, these things sort of become more tangible realities in the in the Christian communities that are now forming. So some of these these deep longings and aspirations are be, are becoming manifest now, um, as Jesus is calling disciples and as as the church then progresses from there. So I do think Jesus is really the hinge between the two. Is it that we have prophecies posited, and Christ fulfills them? Is it that uh, we have uh, an incompleteness in the Old Testament that's completed by Christ? How would you describe the uh, connectedness there? For Jews, there's certainly a, a seismic shift in thinking about what does faithful obedience to God look like, and law-keeping in the way that it had been traditionally understood, um, the whole sacrificial system, those kinds of things, There's a that's sort of overturned. And there's a new sort of a new way of being. So I, again, I think some of those things that would have been important traditionally are are less so as people begin to understand um, a life of obedience to Christ. Um, in and again, what we talk about is as a new covenant, which again puts a puts an emphasis on on love, puts an emphasis on service, uh, puts an emphasis on 
um, you know, peacemaking, these kinds of things. Um, and that kind of characterizes these new communities that are, that are being formed. And I think there are, are traces of that, certainly in the Old Testament. There's, there's hints of that, but it, be, it becomes more central in a different kind of way. Now we're, we're kind of we're live, trying to live in obedience to, to Jesus um, rather than trying to keep, let's say, a, a whole set of, of laws that we would have seen in, in, in ancient Israel. Two, I have two questions here interconnected with that. And that is, the, the first one is that there is an inherent, I don't know if it's inherently anti-Semitic in a kind of Lutheran notion, that certainly we see anti-Semitism arising, uh, that many people would link it directly back to Luther, with the notion that the law itself, or the by the Old Testament itself, or that, that that was the problem. Is it that the law, per se, is the problem? I'm not quite sure I would say it that way. I, I, I wonder if it's more an incomplete vision of who God is and who God calls us to be. It still seems to me that there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis on overcoming oppressors through violent means. Again, thinking of the first century context when you're, again, hoping for a Messiah who's going to do that. And if that's what you think sort of the main agenda of God is about, that God is going to bring in this physical conquering king who's going to liberate you through violent political force, that's not what God is up to. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. And so I think there's a, a, a big adjustment that needs to be made in how people understand, again, what God is doing in the world and how we sort of partner with God in that process. And so I think when you get a when you get a vision of that, then law keeping sort of fades into the into the background. It's, it's not essential in the same way that it was viewed in in the past. So again, I think it's sort of a, a shift, a bigger shift of what the grand vision of God is and how people can participate in that. You just spelled out very beautifully, and I'm wondering if the way you said it, I asked you in the beginning, you know, what would be your rule of faith? Did you just say it? Well, I guess if I was going to just directly answer that maybe it would be I think it's I do think it's I mean it's sort of like Augustine would talk about this too I think the you know, the rule of love right is that you know it's loving God and loving others and that's what Jesus himself says you know, these are the two greatest commandments so for me they are my they would sort of be my my guardrails as it were you know as I interpret scripture as I think about living out my my own uh, life that I want to like to do things that would you know enhance both of those um, I think that's what God that's what Jesus calls us to and that's what, you know, the, it's there, and there is a kind of attention even there that Jesus says, well, the law and the prophets are summed up in you'll love your neighbor as yourself and, you know, love God with all of your heart. They were very familiar with that, and yet were they? Well, I guess we could say the same thing about Christian church today, right? We, we, know, we know those things, but we haven't had a very good track record of, you know, of doing them. That, and that's maybe as an overstatement. I mean, there certainly are Christian communities who have done a marvelous job and are inspiring examples. And yet there are so many Christians who don't quite seem to have grasped that love is primary. You know, loving neighbor, loving enemy. Uh, we've done so much that has moved us in the opposite direction that um, it's been harmful to the you know, to the witness of the church. And even Jesus says that in John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, you know, as I have loved you. In other words, it is both there, and yet it seems like what Jesus is saying, nonetheless, this is new for you. I mean, to be honest, it's it's hard to it's hard to live out 
I think, again, we hear messages in church that may talk about loving enemies or forgiving others, but we're not always given a lot of real practical guidance as to what that looks like and how that how we live that out in the world. And so the more stories we can hear of people who do that, examples that we can be given, tools that we can be equipped with, um, that's all really helpful, I think, in making it a reality. And that's the way you're reading the Old Testament. You're saying, well, this is either going to be an aid in me enacting love and understanding the God of love, or even if it's a negative example, nonetheless, I'm still going to apply the same lesson. Yeah, I, w- I want to read the Old Testament in ways that encourage, again, love of God, love of others, that encourage um, peacemaking. Um, and I think there are resources for doing that. You have to be intentional, I think, and looking for that. And you have to think about, as you say, sometimes you just hold something up and, says, and say, this is just it's a negative example. This is what we're not to do. And, and you know, here's why. Look at the consequences that came out of this particular action. They're, they're, not, they're not good. But I do want to use it in, in ways that, that promote you know, peace and, and justice. I was uh, looking at Greg Boyd's book, and it, I, I actually can't remember if this was his idea or if this occurred to me. I, and that is that yet there is this tension. It's a tension that is there, uh, certainly between the God portrayed in much of the Old Testament and the God portrayed in Christ. But there's also a tension then even in the Old Testament between various portrayals of God. As I thought about this, this is what I appreciate about you so much. Boy, you just asked the question, you put your finger on it. But isn't that part of the point? We're not to turn our eyes away from these tensions. But in fact, in the tension itself, we're to dwell there and come away with something that's theologically significant. Again, I I think all texts have value, so I'm not wanting to dismiss any of them. And so I do think when you come across these really difficult ones, they are worth wrestling with. And some people use the analogy of, you know, know, Jacob wrestling. There's some question about who whom Jacob, Jacob is wrestling, but it looks, you know, many people say it's God, this wrestling with God, and that, you know, I'm not going to let you go until I, you bless me. And I, I think there's, and that's been used again of these biblical texts. Like these are texts that we wrestle with. Um, we want to get something out of them that can be instructive and, and useful. And so I'm, I'm willing to engage in that struggle, even though it may be difficult to, to try to find things that we can take away. And in this, your answer, if I, I had a, I'd written down a question here, but I think you've already answered it. That is, you know, what's this thing about? What's this book about? What is the overall point of the New Testament? Haven't you just said that in the way that you've summed up the point that you're looking for? When you say, what is this book about? Are you talking about the, the New Testament in particular or the the, the Old Testament? The Old Testament. Well, I mean, again, the Old Testament is it's such a diverse collection of texts. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's Israel's witness to their lived reality with God. And so... It, it does many different things. Um, I'm not sure I can say, can sort of sum it up neatly in it. This is the one thing that it that it does. I think they're wrestling with big questions. You know, what's the meaning of life? Like a book like Ecclesiastes, they've got psalms that are helping them worship. They have texts that help them make sense of, you know, national tragedy that they've experienced, like the exile. So I think this is literature that, that grows out of their, again, their lived experience with God, trying to help them understand who God is, who they are, um, how to make sense of their world, how to remain faithful sometimes in you know hostile environments to their faith. I mean, all of that stuff I think together is part of the part of these texts. 
and I think, like I said earlier, I do think there is this 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 longing, this this hope. You know, we kind of hear in some of these prophetic texts, like that they'll be, you know, the new heart will be given, that that will be different, that we can live, that we can actually live the way we want to live. And so I, I think there's that that sort of unrealized hope that I think many would say, well, that can, is realized in certain ways as we encounter Jesus and as we receive the Spirit of God to help us to live out, you know, faithful lives. I guess I'm I'm caught up in the idea of a rule of faith. I've been thinking about that. And and it seems like that in the brethren tradition, in the, the peaceful tradition of the church, that what we want to say about the way we're reading the whole thing is the peace and love of God, the peace of Christ, is ultimately the point of the book. Yes, and I, I think I would say if you if you read it in ways that don't reflect the love of God, don't promote peacemaking, then I would encourage you to go back and, and reread it, because I do think that's what our reading and interpretation and application should lead us toward. So again, I think they're, I think they're really helpful you know, guide rails to, to keep us on track um, so that we don't do things with the text that actually are harmful to others. And that's a rule of faith. Right, yeah, right. Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, that's not who God is. You understand that your tra- your tradition. I have such a profound appreciation for the Anabaptist tradition. You know that I think that you've inherited. But you understand that for most of us, the faith that we've been brought up in. I I'm afraid that the central part of the gospel is missing from what we've heard. I, I think again in many. I mean, in many traditions, there is such a strong emphasis on a particular view of the Bible, that the Bible is, if not perfect, you know, completely historically accurate, and that what we read in the Bible of God is is what God is like. And that, I think, limits us in developing a truer, clearer, more accurate understanding of, of the character of God. You, you can't have, on the one hand, this text is perfect as it is, and God is a morally perfect being, those two things, just they don't sit together in my mind. There's no way to reconcile the two. Some, something has to give one way or the other. And for me, it makes a lot more sense to say, well, it makes sense to look at these texts as historically, culturally conditioned texts, and they don't always reflect what God is like. And so I, I do think you have to be willing to say that if we want to think about God as God actually is, we need, we need to make some decisions about what to do with some of these difficult passages. In the tradition that I'm I'm a part of. We almost have zero appreciation for church history, for patristics. We appreciate the church history that involves our church, but the rest of it is, uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit to say that it's nearly irrelevant. You know, things happened on the day of Pentecost, and then we come to Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, and that's where we pick up the story. And, and what you end up with is a form of biblicism. In other words, if we have a disagreement uh, about theology or doctrine or morality, I think there is a biblicism that is there in evangelicalism that says, oh, okay, well, we'll just turn to the Bible and we'll solve the problem. But what I'm hearing you uh, describe is something a, a little bit more nuanced and complicated. I think the starting point needs to be our conviction about God being essentially a God of love. 
So for me, that is my sort of primary starting point. And everything that I think about God has to flow from that central conviction. So you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be loved? What does that look like? What does love do? What does love not do? And that, I think, informs how we how we read and interpret the Bible. I mean, and that, that statement is, comes right out of the Bible itself, right? We read in 1 John, God is love. So it's not something that's foreign to Scripture, but it's a it's saying, I'm going to privilege this as my starting point. That's, a the, again, it's a theological conviction, and I'm going to use that then to help me think about this broader question of the nature of Scripture. But, yeah, I think biblicism can be very dangerous. Um, and, again, it tends to be still someone's interpretation of the text in a particular way that they say this is what the Bible is saying and, and it leads them down certain paths. But I think if you start theologically with God as a God of love and then begin to look at the text through that lens, it, it opens up some other possibilities. That is just a beginning point. Right. If you can't agree on that point, then I guess we can't make progress. But if we can agree on that point, then we can move forward. Right. No, I, I think it's really helpful. I guess I think where people get stuck is they want to say, yes, God is a God of love and God is a God of wrath and God is a God of violence. And that somehow all of those things are compatible. And I just I just can't see how they all fit together. Um, I, I sort of use the analogy sometimes. It's like if someone was you know dating and you know brought their boyfriend, girlfriend home and, you know, said to the, you know, maybe we're introducing them to their parents for the first time, say, hey, it's a really great person, they're loving, they, you know, help old people across the street, and they they serve at the food bank. You know, every once in a while, they fly off the handle and kill babies, but, you know, on the whole, they're pretty good. I mean, we'd be like, what? That's crazy. Like, I wouldn't, you, that's not the kind of person you want to get connected with. But that's sort of what we say about God, and I just, again, I just don't see how all that fits together. If God is truly a God of love, and that's, you have to ask yourself, what is love, and what does love look like, and do some of these portrayals match up with that? And some do but others don't. And I think we need to be willing to say then that those are not accurate reflections of God's true character. You mentioned Augustine, and it was a curious reference, because one might think that by the time we get to Augustine, in fact, we've lost the very thing that you're describing. Well, I, th- I mentioned because I, it's, it's him, as I'm remembering, that has said that he has this rule of sort of the rule of love, to love God and love others. And that for him is really, I think, an important um, principle. And so I kind of want to give credit back to where that kind of comes from. But there's a shift certainly in the church by that time. We feel like we've maybe lost some of our, you know, the separation of church and state as we now talk about it. And um, just a real clear sense of nonviolence. Things have shifted um, by the time we get to Augustine. So I think that is is an unfortunate um, development. And I don't want to overstate it, but John Howard Yoder talks about the fall of the church. I think actually he connects, it's actually prior to Constantine, but certainly by the Constantinian shift. Is that your view? I think it's, I mean, highly problematic. I mean, on the one hand, like, it looks good. Like, wouldn't it be great if Christians aren't being persecuted anymore? Like, I'm not for persecuting Christians. That's, I would never advocate that. Um, but I do think when Christian faith gets connected to political power, that is exceedingly dangerous. Um, and we, again, we have all sorts of contemporary examples of that. So I think that connection did just enormous harm for uh, the vitality and integrity of, of, the, of the church. Maybe that's kind of a, the problem with any of us who adhere to something like uh, a nonviolent gospel or the peace church. Uh, I'm just curious, what do you do with all of the period the, of church history 
in which that is largely absent? Well, I think, again, we you can be honest about it. I think talk about what happened and say we wish it would have been otherwise. We can sort of recognize some of the missteps the church has made. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easier to maybe see now than had we lived been living through it. Try not to repeat the mistakes of the past. I mean, I think that's, again, I just think about our contemporary moment of how much, especially in America, United States, how much Christianity and and nationalism are sort of combined. And you know, for some people, it's like they're an American, they're a Christian, they're an American, they're a Christian. It's so woven together that it's hard to separate the two. I think that's when it becomes really dangerous because then your, your primary loyalty might actually be to the state rather than Christ. Although most Christians would deny that, but when push comes to shove, it certainly seems that sometimes those values of the nation do trump their own Christian commitments. I uh, was looking recently, and I'm, I'm wondering how you would negotiate this, the difference in interpretive method between Alexandria and Antioch, that we come up with an alternative reading. I understand that, oh, they're still even in an Antiochian reading. It's not that they've given up allegory or a spiritual reading. But of course, that is, it's out of that reading that we get condemnation of there's a series of heretics that are produced by an alternative reading and of course i don't think you could just say oh they're reading the bible wrong in other words i think we've already said that that's not exactly the problem that they've fallen into an error in their, their interpretive method but maybe we can say that people who do not have a rule of faith that is inclusive of love and peace no longer have a proper Christian interpretive method. Is that too strong? I'm hesitating, so I, I wouldn't want to say that they're not Christian or they're not. No, no, no. In that sense, um, I would say it's not consistent with how I understand Jesus to be teaching and calling and leading us. It, it seems inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus. If your your interpretive method is not. Uh, guided by commitment to to love and to peace and to justice, then it seems out of step with what Jesus is calling us to to do. So I, I would probably try to frame it th that way. Let me turn to the book a little bit. It is a, a very practical guide, I think, too. Okay, we here's the Old Testament. You're someone who has this profound appreciation. What If you had to say, what has made the Old Testament so attractive for you? I think again, I mean, my initial four, like I mentioned, was a was a college class. But beyond that, you know, in that college class, I think it, I just saw how these texts kind of sort of came to life. That they actually spoke and were relevant to my own, you know, my own journey, my own uh, faith. They weren't just, you know, dry historical records. And so that that sort of life giving quality has been really important. And as I, you know, as I've dug into it, certainly there are all sorts of great things from the Old Testament. There are people who have a really kind of gutsy kind of faith that you can, you know, you can appreciate, whether it's, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You you have stories in the Old Testament that provide alternatives to violence, like, you know, Abigail, who prevents a massacre. Um, you've got Elijah, who's, you know, feeding um, or encouraging the king to feed enemies rather than to kill them. So those kind of things I think are really imaginative and hopeful. There are stories that Again, teach us truths, like I mentioned before, about the story of you know the miracle of the manna in Exodus chapter 16. How it really helps us think about you know how do we how do we develop trust in God? So, just in so many ways, these texts kind of have come alive and 
have been really helpful for me. It's, it's, it's hard to even think about who I would be were it not for the influence of these texts over many years. So they've really had a profound influence for me, and, been, and I found them to be really relevant. Would you say that you encounter Christ in the Old Testament? I, I think I would say I, I learned more of what it means to be a Christ follower through the Old Testament, yes. Um, certainly that's true. I mean, it's just a much fuller picture of what it means to, um, to follow Christ, to follow God. Um, without that, I just think we'd be impoverished. Um, again, some of the same ideas are certainly there in the New Testament. Sometimes they're there more propositionally, like maybe in a verse, in a letter somewhere. But to see it in a story, um, I think, helps us kind of internalize it in a way that's just sometimes harder to do with just a verse here or a verse there. So I, I just, I, I love, I particularly love the Old Testament stories. I think they're helpful in that way. That is the narrative, in a sense. I, I did enjoy you, you went through, I, I think, a, a valuable part of the book. I, I know I, I tended to gravitate, okay, I want to see how he's going to deal with these hard issues, you know. <laughs> and, of course, you do, uh, just in a straightforward sort of way. But then there, there is a great deal of just uh, practical uh, value in it. You have a section or, uh, on just, okay, you have questions, and you should have questions. Don't turn away from those questions, but try to find the answer. I, I think that's really important, especially, I mean, for all people, I think especially for, for young people. I mean, I work in a university setting, so, you know, people have questions about things they've been taught, things they've learned in church, and, you know, sometimes they've raised these questions and they've been told, you know, in so many words, just to shut up, not ask those questions, just kind of believe, and that does not, that does not help, and it does not work for people who are intelligent and, and want to explore questions of faith, and so I really encourage people to you know, ask questions of the text, ask questions of your faith, um, you know, explore how Christians in the past have thought about these things, you know, talk to contemporary, talk to your pastor, talk to folks about these things, but be, try to try to look for answers. And that's that process of asking questions will strengthen and, and refine and develop your own faith. It will help you know really what you believe and what you don't. Um, I think a lot of people, especially coming into, you know, college or university, they kind of come in on the faith of family maybe um, and haven't really navigated what they for themselves believe and why and so asking questions is a doorway that kind of I think can strengthen and enhance their own their own convictions you mentioned the boring parts and I have to admit <laughs> I looked at that chapter I didn't get through it what's the answer what do you do with the boring parts <laughs> yeah I mean there are some parts that again I think for a lot of people just not going to they're not going to find very scintillating. Like I, I use in that chapter Leviticus 1 through 7. Seven chapters all about sacrifice. Most contemporaries could care less about animal sacrifice or grain sacrifice. And so you've got seven chapters talking about that. So my, my suggestion in those places is, okay, just pause for a moment before you just kind of speed through them and ask, well, what are these chapters about? Well, they're, they're chapters about worship. I and mean, sacrifice was at the heart of ancient Israel's worship. So once I've figured that out, then I can say, okay, well, what might these chapters teach me about worship? Sure, I'm not going to go to church on Sunday morning and kill a lamb, but it do suggest things like, you know, worship involved the worshiper. Like, you had to bring your own animal to the priest, and you were actually, you took part in the sacrifice. So it makes me think about, well, how involved or how engaged am I in, in the practice of worship? Or you think about worship being sort of multi-sensory, right? There were sounds and there were smells, and sometimes taste. I mean, all that was part of their experience of worship. And then you might again ask, well, what could I do to become more 
so more how could more of my senses become involved in experiences of worship so i think things like that can be useful even if you're not all that excited to know some of the more fine points of what's involved in a burnt offering um, there's still things that can be relevant for us today you mentioned abraham and you know i know kierkegaard he boy he does a lot with that story because there's clearly you know there's a tension there and yet you just say well this really is this story is really not worthy of who god is i'm wondering and i i <laughs> i'm torn you know i i've struggled with that story and I, I, you know, I, I read Kierkegaard. Actually, gets quite a bit of uh, a mileage out of struggling with it. Is there a sense that maybe in dismissing the text too quickly uh, and not not wrestling with it, you know, uh, believing well, maybe there's something here I'm missing, or do you not really value an uh, an uh, Kierkegaardian reading of you know fear and trembling? I'm not familiar with exactly what Kierkegaard does with that, so I'm not quite sure I can speak directly to that. I guess what I would say is I, I think it's important to be clear, and I preached a sermon on this passage, and I may reference that in the book, where I took some time to say that this picture of God, a God who is commanding a father to offer his own son as a, as a sacrifice, to kill his son, that is not an accurate picture of who God is. God has never done that. God doesn't do that, and God will never do that. God, God doesn't want people to kill their children. So I, I don't want people to take away from that passage that somehow kids are dispensable or that God would ever cause that kind of emotional, psychological trauma that we would imagine happen as a result of that encounter. So I would want to say that up front. However, I would say, but that is sort of just, that's just one issue that you can wrestle with with this passage. And I went on to talk in the sermon about how I think what this text is really trying to do is it's trying to say, how can we get Abraham, or how can we know that Abraham is at the place where his loyalty to God is above every other loyalty? And only through you know this kind of a test it, does it seem like that can be revealed. So I would say in the same way, I think God wants to know that that our loyalty to God is is first and foremost. It's, it's sort of like you know the the story of the rich young ruler in the in the New Testament, you know whose riches came before his love for God, and that became a problem. And so I think God does the same kind of thing for us today, and I think we can make application like that. So there's value in the text. I just don't think there's value in saying God is the kind of being who would command such an atrocity like this, um, because I don't think God does that. So I'm trying to do, I kind of call it a both and. You know, we try to say, yeah, this is a problem here, and there's also great stuff to be uh, mined from the text as well. So you don't see in that story a reflection of what God went through with his own son? I would not make that connection. I mean, I, yeah, I would probably make that connection. Because it's wrong? Because it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated to think about, again, what executives into thinking about what is happening on the cross, and there are some really bad theologies out there, as you know, you're aware of, where you have God pouring out all his wrath on the son, and you know, being separate from the sun, I just I don't see the cross through that way. I see the cross as this example of you know, God overcoming evil through suffering love. Um, and so I'm I'm hesitant to try to do too much separating between the Father is doing this and the Son is doing that over here. And so I just I tend not to go down that that road. Coming back to the New Testament, how the cross is often viewed that you know God had to kill Jesus in order to forgive us. I think it's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how forgiveness works. I, 
again, I think it's it's scandalous grace. It's the beauty of of forgiveness. Um, there's no payment that needs to be made. Forgiveness is just forgiveness. It's a release of you know, it's, it's release. The the other one. Are you familiar with John Walton and his reading of Genesis? Um, I'm not. No. He's saying that the story of creation, in his understanding, you know, we've gotten caught up in imagining that here is the origin of material creation and kind of the mechanics of creation. He says that's not what it's about, that it's about the why or, or on the order of an ancient temple dedication ceremony. So that here is the cosmic temple being formed. And then he compares it to other uh, myth, you know, readings, mythological reading, readings, and saying what Genesis is doing is over and against something like the Enuma Elish, which is a violent reading, right. which I, I think is a very interesting understanding that I've kind of accepted, but I almost accept it on the basis then of a book like John. Actually, I began to read the Gospel of John and say, you know what? The first chapter of John in the beginning was the word. It, it's it's a, almost like the creation story or a recreation story being told, ending at the temple, of course, the so-called cleansing of the temple. But, of course, I've done what you as an Old Testament scholar may not like. And that is, and I've said, well, we actually should read Genesis in light of the, the New Testament. Yes, yeah, I think for me, I would say my question would be, what, what is an ancient creation account? Like, what, what genre is that, and how, how do they function? And I would say those texts don't function to give us a, you know, a specific how exactly it all happened. They function to make claims about, you know, who God is, what kind of, what, how the world is constituted, Know, how human beings should live in relation to God and and others. I mean, that's what creation accounts are are about. So, I, I mean, I do think the I do think that the account is particularly you know Genesis one is is written in light of you know the Enuma Elish, uh, where you have a there's no violence in chapter one of Genesis. God is simply speaking, and things come into existence. Whereas the other, the, you know, this Mesopotamian account is very violent, lots of violence going on. So it's a very different. You know, very different kind of story there. Um, so I think that's striking. I think that the writers are trying to make a, a different kind of claim about God um, than we see elsewhere. So I, again, I try to just think about what are these texts trying to do, how they function in their original context. Would you agree with that reading that this is an anti-myth story? Uh, when you say anti-myth, like over and against the like the Enuma Elish yeah. or other creation myths uh, that. They are what a, a creation myth in most religions, the way it functions. Uh, I was a missionary in Japan for 20 years, and we, you know, we have there the Kojiki and the, it's actually very similar to what's happening in the Enuma Elish, that a god dies and out of the death, you know, in the Enuma Elish, the body of, the, of Tiamat is, becomes the canopy of the heavens. Uh, that's not an unusual story in that, the blood of the gods in some way. In other words, it's a violent myth of origin. And so that would be, you know, I think it's a kind of Girardian reading, but not necessarily. And that is that what's happening in the Bible as over and against myth is uh, religious myth is violent and originally, in other words, it depends on, on an originary violence. What's happening in scripture is an originary peace. 
I guess I've been getting hung up on the word myth because I would still say in the best sense of the term, what we read in Genesis is also myth. It's, you know, we tend to think about myth as false stories of the gods, and I don't, I don't use it in that sense, but I think it's, it's a story in which they're trying to communicate what for them are some absolute truths, not because this is exactly how it happened, but because this is what reflects rea- the reality in which, which we live. And so it's, it's mythic in that sense, but it's a different kind of myth than what you find in these other creation accounts. So I think that's, that's again, I just see it as it's pushing back against um, the way that creation is portrayed in Mesopotamia, because it's a it is a peaceful, nonviolent. As has been said, you know, their humans are created in order to feed the gods, and here you've got God who's making fruit trees for humans. And so it's a kind of a diff- it's just flipping things around, seeing the world through some different lenses. I think. Yeah. Okay, can I do one more question? Sure. And that is that you've given us this picture in the. Old Testament, that this is, you know, we kind of have a picture of your reading, but I'm assuming, or do you, How it, does this just simply, you carry this kind of understanding over into the, you don't read the New Testament any differently? That's true. I mean, especially in terms of um, violent text, it, it would still be, I mean, it's Christ-centered. So even within the New Testament, there are passages that are going to be troubling, like in the book of Acts, you've got, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, Although the text doesn't claim directly that God is the one who strikes them down, that seems to be the implication of the text. And again, I would say that's a carryover from, you know, some of this other Old Testament thought of you know, divine retribution. Or you have King Herod who's, you know, struck and you know eaten by worms and dies. It's kind of a grisly passage in the book of Acts. But again, it's, it's stuff that we've read from the Old Testament. So I, I don't think, again, people just kind of flipped a switch after the coming of Jesus. This is deeply embedded in, in people's psyche, this sense that you know God punishes evildoers and God rewards those who are righteous. And that's how things work out in the world. People today still I mean, think of those kind of categories. Um, and I think Jesus says it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't work that way. This is a God who sends rain you know, on, the, on the righteous and unrighteous, sends the sun you know, on the just and unjust. Um, this is a God who loves indiscriminately, which is wonderful, beautiful, marvelous, um, the kind of God that you know, I think we should all be attracted to. So we should flip the switch. We should. Yeah, we should. It's just, it's, it's hard for us to do, particularly in a culture that is saturated with, you know, as Walter Wink talks about, the myth of redemptive violence, that we think the violence is, you know, violence is what saves us, you know, he talks about it. And that's, it's, it's really hard for us to say, no, there's, a, there's another way, a better way. Um, that's reflective of who God is and who God calls us to be. Well, I sure appreciate, I appreciate you, Eric, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. I think that that the witness that you have is so valuable for the church today. I think this is the voice that people need to hear, and that's why I'm, I'm so interested in your work. Thank you, Paul. And I encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. Where Tell them where they can get the book. So, enjoying the Old Testament, you can find it on Amazon, other booksellers. Um, it's published by InterVarsity Press, so you can go to their website and they would have it there as well. Okay. All right. I appreciate it very much. Good talking, Eric. Oh, you too, Paul. Thanks. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, 
or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.